we know that you will love this podcast. So shut your mouth and listen to Canadian Bushcraft. Hello, Dragonfly Nation. This is the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast, episode 37. We are on 37 episodes now because I clearly have nothing better to do with my life. But I am here yet again with my favorite hostage, Rye the Adventure Guy. No way. I'm back again. You're back again. Because we <laughs> strangely enough, when I have a podcast backed up with another podcast immediately, you're somehow here. Whoa, it's like we were just talking about that. It's like we were just talking yeah. about it. It's crazy. Wowie wow. It's crazy. Okay, Christopher Walker's gotta go away before we go further in this. Um, on this episode of the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast, we invited our supporters on Patreon to pick the subject. And they voted for a recipe episode for Wild Game, oh. right? We ha- we had like four or five different options for them. Every month, we offer our patrons at Patreon to contribute to to vote on what they want to hear because it's it's really like at the end of the day, we want everyone to have their say. But the patrons are you know financially backing this whole project, so we want to make sure they get their say on this. So they chose out of like four or five options a Wild Game episode, and it's really challenging to do a wild game episode because first off like you're going to hear me do the recipes i want to tell you like the measurements or what i add to it, and you're gonna be like hold on for a second i can't read that this is not a cookbook and because of that I, like i have a lot of recipes for a lot of different games i like to eat wild game my goal every year is to make my freezer 60 percent or more wild game and the rest store-bought or farm-raised so because of that we can only really give you one recipe per animal that we're gonna be talking about and we have a lot of animals. We'll also we, teach you how to make craft dinner. So <laughs> toss that in on there too. It'll be a side dish. It'll be yeah. a side dish for some of Yeah, we can do that. Uh, so what we're going to talk about tonight is recipes for squirrel, rabbit, grouse, or other upland game bird, walleye, goose, turkey, mallard duck, black bear, moose, and venison. So we're going to go from the smallest to the biggest. I threw a fish in there too because there's some folks that not, not necessarily are into – hunting but they sure like to go fishing when they're in the back country so we're going to throw in a recipe for every single one of them before that i want to kind of dive into what is like the 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 culture of wild game uh so wild game is a polarizing food choice there's the obvious plate fright that seems to come along with food that isn't farm raised and inspected by a governing body of some sort i've heard people say things like is it safe or is that legal to even eat like like some crazy wild questions in my eyes wild or crazy but for a lot of people they're not sure if this stuff is even safe to consume beyond that is often the issue that we as modern people in the western culture are often lazy in our understanding of how different meats cook the vast majority of us regularly eat chicken beef and pork and occasionally some salmon turkey and maybe even lamb uh and that means we know how to cook those meats and even then frankly most of us are pretty lazy with their prep and so when it comes to wild food a lot of us are babies in the woods or babes in the woods i often hear people describe wild meats as gamey quote unquote gamey which is a vague description of a flavor that is not uh, that is not common to our palate and so we frankly dislike it a lot of people say like oh i don't like bear it's really gamey oh that deer that I had last year uh, turned me off from deer. It's, it was really gamey. That raccoon is really gamey. <laughs> yes, the raccoon is well. Raccoon is a fine <laughs> meat, by the way, folks. As long as it's not a trash panda from the city. You want to get a corn panda. Get yourself a good corn-fed panda out in the wild. Uh, so, what is a gamey flavor? Gamey flavor is a strong to off-putting flavor that we can talk about in many layers. 
there's a lot of causes for it. And so we got to talk about the causes before we understand how to tackle it. Uh, gaming flavors can be caused by a few things, and understanding what the causes are can help us figure out ways to make a meal more pleasant. First off, scent glands and other body fluids like blood, urine, and gall fluid all impact the meat. So as we talked about in the previous episode using the whole animal, you want to get the guts out of there as quickly as you can and wash away everything else that's in there. And if you're doing the processing of an animal like a, a deer, you're going to be dealing with things like the tarsal gland. If you're doing beaver or other small game, you may be contending with things like castor glands or scent glands. These are glands that can put out an oily flavor that's got an oily off-putting flavor that can be in the meat but also on your knife. And then as soon as you start cutting into all the other meat, you're leaving a trace of that oily residue on everything else. So knowing how to properly field dress, a.k.a. gut and skin, uh, our kill is paramount. Be very careful to absor- uh, avoid rupturing organs and be mindful of tarsal glands, castor sacs, and other glands that produce strong odors. I think that should be across the board. There's even like animal that isn't up where we are, but is an American, uh, North American wild game. The peccary or the javelina are often nicknamed stink pig because they have a gland on the small of their back that literally looks like a butthole frankly, and it has this very off-putting, almost skunky smell to it. So things like that have to be taken into consideration. The next cause of gamey flavors are bones and fat. This is especially true with the larger rodents, uh, like beaver and porcupine. If a cut of meat tastes off, even though you clean the animal thoroughly, then try removing the fat. If the taste is still strong, debone the cuts and try again. Experimenting with your food is key to figuring out the best way to prepare it. Uh, if you've never had beef, like, a, a, if you've never had beef before and you didn't know that you should sear the meat to start to bring up the flavor indexes, you would think beef was pretty bland and blasé if you never had meat that was well seared and well cooked. Um, so learning to play with your food and figuring out how to work with it the best way and prep it, part of that is learning what parts are going to have certain flavors. So if uh, if you don't like the taste of a moose, I often find that people that don't like moose meat don't like moose meat because they ate like a moose steak with the bone in the steak and the marrow started to get in there. The marrow of a moose can taste very good, but for some people, the bone itself can ha- can impart a flavor to the meat that's just a little what they call gamey. And personally, I don't mind that flavor at all, but for some people, they don't enjoy it. Uh, the other major cause of strong flavors is diet. Our beef are raised on either grass or corn, and for the most part, so are most of the other farm-raised animals we consume. And so our palate is accustomed to these flavors. You're more accustomed to corn and grass than the actual animal itself. Like it's really the flavor is made by the animal. A beaver living in a pond surrounded by spruce and pine will have a more coniferous flavor, for lack of a better term, than one that lived on a river edged in by poplars and maples. They're going to taste more like sawdust. So, or turpentine, I've heard some people claim. Uh, deer that live in big coniferous swamps will have a strong taste compared to ones munching on apples and clover. Bears who are living on blueberries will have a fattened meat that could taste slightly like jam, almost pre-marinated. Whereas a bear that found a semi-rotted moose carcass will have quite the overwhelming flavor. And with a lot of these animals, you won't know if it was a good animal until you cook it and you smell it. If the bear has been living off a lot of carrion, it's going to smell like carrion as it starts to cook. And that's sadly the game we play when we hunt. Sometimes the meat is going to be pretty off-putting 
That doesn't mean you get to throw it out. You have to use as much of that animal as possible. Legally, you're not supposed to leave meat behind. So much so that the state of Alaska actually has a law that if you're packing out the animal, you must pack out all the meat first before you go for the trophy parts like the hide and the head, which I think is a great ethic to go by. I carry that myself with my crew when we go hunting for big game. We try to get all the meat out first and we'll come back for everything else afterwards. Um, this part is of the flavor is hard to figure out. Often you're left with having to depend on the location you're hunting in to provide you with good results. Don't trap beaver surrounded by spruce trees if you if you plan on eating that meat. Try to find open water where they're surrounded by a lot of good hardwoods that are gonna have good flavors in them. Deer, you should be hunting them like there's the beauty of the swamp buck become becoming your trophy deer almost every year. But the venison is gonna taste pretty strong. And if that's the case, learn to marinate. Learn how to do dry rubs. Learn how to add seasonings and spices and flavors into the venison so that it's not too off-putting. Or grind it all up and make it into chili. <laughs> Frankly, you can do that as well. Finally, on the subject of gamey flavors, I want to state clearly that it's often more in your mind than in your taste buds. Goat is often considered to have a strong flavor by most Westerners. Yet I have had countless amazing meals from Caribbean and Arabic friends where goat is part of their cuisine it's part of their culture the food tastes good from those cultures because they know how to work with it in those cases the goat's flavor was celebrated and enhanced by how it was cooked what i'm getting at is sometimes you just need to accept that the wild game tastes different than what you're used to and you need to learn how to work with the meat's character rather than try to shoehorn it into your expectations in other words get over yourself and eat the damn animal so with that out of the way i want to give you some of my favorite recipes for some of my favorite wild game both big and small Let's start with the small game, and as a heads up, I'll be using Fahrenheit in describing uh, oven temperatures. That's because my oven has no Celsius range. Yeah, I, it's been all scratched off over years of use, so all I can really see is the Fahrenheit range. And honestly, I remember Fahrenheit better when it comes down to cooking. It's just from how I was raised cooking. I heard a lot of recipes, read a lot of recipes over my time in the Fahrenheit because a lot of authors for cookbooks come from the States. And even though I am fairly pro-metric, Fahrenheit is what I use for a lot of my cooking recipes. So let's start with squirrel. Squirrels are by far my favorite animal to hunt and honestly one of my favorite meals to work, uh, meats to work with. Gray squirrels are the name of the game here and they can make a variety of entrees. The majority of the meat you can, uh, you can chew on is in the hind legs. And so what I often will often do is skin the squirrel, gut it and cut the hind legs off. The rest of the carcass, like the head and the, the front legs and the, and the back, uh, I'm going to basically crisp them, uh, cook them in around, you know, I'm going to put the whole carcass in with lightly salt and roast it around 300 degrees until crisp. Then I will then coarsely chop with a heavy knife and use to make a stock with one whole chopped onion, two diced carrots, and three diced stalks of celery. Squirrel stock is a great way to make a lot of soups, stews, and braised meats. Two or three carcasses done this way, prepared this way, will make you about a gallon of stock. Uh, with the stock cooking low and slow, now we can decide what to do with the hind legs. Most folks will fry squirrel, either chicken fried or deep fried. This is one way, but not my favorite way. Uh, for that title, we need to look into confit. Confit is a French term, uh, cooking term literally translated to uh, as to preserve. Uh, there's a few steps and some time involved, but in the end, you'll have an amazing meat that is able to be kept out of the fridge for upwards of several weeks. True confit is made with either duck or goose, but the method itself lend, uh, the method lends itself to many small game animals such as squirrel, grouse, rabbits, and quail. First, we will need a lot of fat, and I do mean a lot of fat, preferably goose or duck fat, about a liter to start with for a small batch of legs. 
Once we have acquired that, either through hunting and rendering plenty of ducks and geese or buying it from the store, we can begin to cure the squirrel legs. The, the, you can go into most oil sections of most Canadian grocery stores and find jars of goose fat. It comes from the goose industry, the goose meat industry, and it's rendered out already ready to go. So if you don't have enough goose meat or you haven't got enough Canada geese, enough mallard ducks to render out a bunch of fat out of them, feel free to just go to the grocery store. It's totally fine to get store-bought goose fat for this. Uh, so now we're going to cure the squirrel, the squirrel meat. Three tablespoons of kosher salt and one tablespoon of cracked black pepper will be needed for every leg of squirrel there is. You need a lot of salt. This is the cure, not the marinade. Don't worry. This is not all going into the meal with you. You're not going to be having a heart attack from all this. Trust me. Uh, added to this cure, we're going to be adding the zest of two lemons and some good fresh aromatic herbs. I personally like thyme and rosemary for this. Uh, you can do sage, you can do uh, oregano, whatever fresh herbs you've got. You're going to coat the salt, pepper, and zest all over the meat and place it into a plastic bag with herbs. This is where I really like using a vacuum sealer is when I'm doing cures on meat. So I really love using the vacuum sealer for this as I can force all the air out of the bag. This curing process is related to dry marinades. So the idea is the fluids in the meat, blood and water and all that stuff, are going to get slowly drawn out by the salt fairly rapidly, like it's going to take a time to get it done perfectly, several hours to several days, but the fluid is going to get drawn out by the salt. It's going to mix in with all the crushed herbs and salt, and then eventually it'll start getting drawn back into the meat. This takes a couple of days, and so I recommend sealing the bag and storing it in the fridge for about two days. After that, you can remove the meat from the bag and rinse the salt and pepper off as best as you can. If you don't want to be including water into this, you can just brush it as thoroughly as you can. That's okay too. But to remove as much salt as possible, I do recommend rinsing the meat off. Pat dry and let sit at room temperature for at least an hour to drain off any excess moisture. You do not want to be putting this in the oven with a lot of water. Again, we're trying to preserve this meat for long periods without any refrigeration. Now, the trick to a successful confit is to cook the meat in all of that delicious fat for a rather long time at a rather low temperature. The goal is to keep the oil below 200 degrees Fahrenheit. Submerge the meat in the fat and set into a 200 degree oven for at least three hours. Have an oven thermometer in there, by the way. You don't want to just have the thermostat setting on your actual oven. You want to actually keep an eye on the temperature. If it starts getting above 195 degrees, crack the door and let some of that heat escape. I actually have a block of wood I keep by my oven for making confit and other really low, slow temperature foods because my oven, when it says 200 degrees, could actually be closer to 20. And you don't want it getting above 200 degrees. That's the main rule of making coffee. It's got to stay around 180 to 195. So once the meat has cooked in the fat for at least three hours, it should be tender and flaky. If it's not, keep it in there longer. Just keep it low and slow, right? When it is finally flaking and get kind of like lifting off the bone easily, Carefully remove it from the cookware and place it in a heat-resistant glass container that has a sealable lid. For most animals, including squirrel, a mason jar is just too small, but you can get larger glass jars if you look around with a good sealable lid. Once all the meat is in the jar, top it up with the goose or duck fat. Every morsel of the squirrel needs to stay under the fat. <coughs> now... You can leave it on the counter for a couple of weeks at most. If you want to keep it for longer, keep it in the fridge. But if you want it just in the next couple of weeks, staying on the countertop is just fine because it's completely submerged in the fat. Air and water aren't going to get to it and start to make it go bad. 
The meat can be used in salads, on a sandwich, or as a meal itself. So you can either pull the meat off the bone and shred that up and put that on top of a salad coal or put that into a sandwich, or you can actually just take the whole thing, bone and all, uh, take it out of the fat, set it under a hot broiler for just a couple of minutes to crisp up the meat, and you're ready to go. That's your confit. It to- only took us six minutes to describe that entire recipe. There, it's a simple one to do. It's a really fun one to do. I'll often have a jar of it sitting in the hunt camp during deer season, and people will just be reaching with a fork and picking meat out and adding it to whatever they're eating because it's just so damn good. You can even just put it on crackers with a little bit of cheese or something. It's a really easy dish to make. It's something you can come back to again and again. And the coolest part is once you've emptied the jar of all the meat and there's just fat in there, render the fat down again, heat it up again, pour it through a sieve, catch all the little drippings and crud that's in there, and you can reuse the fat for another batch of confit. It never really goes away. You're going to eventually run out of it because some of it sticks to the meat as it comes out. Honestly, like sometimes that's really good. Sometimes when there's like a big globule of fat stuck on top and you start broiling it, oh my goodness. It almost tastes like if it's the right herbs and seasoning the right way and you crisp it just right, it can taste like skinless KFC. Like the, 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 the all the seasonings without all that breading. It, it can be really addictive. So another great small game animal is rabbit. Whether it is a cottontail, a snowshoe hare, aka the varying hare, or even a big old swamp jack. And swamp jack is the kind of like nickname for the jackrabbits that live in the big wetlands that spread throughout central Ontario. And they get huge. They get absolutely phenomenally large, like pet rabbit size, like big animals for the wild. Uh, rabbit meat is really unique because it's really bland like there's not a lot of flavor in there but the texture is really really good and because of that it's a kind of a great vessel for putting a lot of flavor into it and then having a great texture with it um my absolute favorite way like most famous way of cooking rabbit is haas and pfeffer we probably all remember that from looney tunes and such haas and pfeffer haas and pfeffer yada 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 it's it's a great meal don't get me wrong it's a phenomenal way to cook rabbit but we've all heard it before, and you can find tons of recipes. I actually prefer a method that I learned from my ben, my buddy, my Ben. Wow, my buddy Ben Bouchard, uh, Benjamin Bouchard from Barry Alex Knife Co., who used to raise a lot of rabbit. I'm not sure if he does anymore, but one of his recipes really got me. I really liked it a lot. And again, we're going to cure the meat, try and infuse a lot of flavor into it, and then we're going to do a little bit different with it. So what we're going to do is we're going to, again, make a cure. This cure can have lemons in it. This cure can have some citrus in it, whatever style you want there. All we really want to have is some good like saltiness and some peppers and maybe some heat in there as well. And we're just going to cure it for a couple of days just like we did the squirrel. Then we're going to either slow cook it or we're going to put it into a uh, crock pot, like a slow cooker, or we can put it into a cast iron Dutch oven with a little bit of oil because rabbits are very lean. A lot of these rabbits, like what some people recommend is actually for every piece of rabbit you put in there, like every whole rabbit, put one strip of bacon to get a little bit of fat in there so it's going to cook up and render out and cook well because rabbit is very lean, hence the whole rabbit starvation stories. Um, What we're going to do then is we're going to take that meat when it's falling off the bone completely. We're going to take all that meat out and we're going to mix it with a hot sauce. Now, I like to use the lacto-fermented hot sauce that I've been playing with over the last year. Uh, This past summer, I made a lacto-fermented blueberry hot sauce and I – Really wish I kept a bottle just to make some of this stuff with the rabbits. I got uh, some left. You got some left? Ooh, yeah. maybe, we'll, maybe we'll do a rabbit hunt soon and get some <laughs> rabbit force to do this up. 
but if you don't have any fancy dancy hot sauces, you can just use Frank's Red Hot or whatever stuff you have. Don't use Tabasco. That stuff's junk. Use proper good hot sauce that you can get, uh, get at most grocery stores and such. Or, like I said, make your own. Um, you're then going to, ooh, that mango pineapple one yeah. would be really good for this. You're going to take that shredded rabbit meat, all the fat and juices in the pot, and then you're going to shred that all up with the with the hot sauce. And then you're just going to put it in the oven at around 200, 225, and just cook it for like 30 more minutes. And that's going to help uh, kind of make the hot sauce blend with the meat really well. You're almost doing like a post-marinade in a sense. But also, you're then going to, at the last like couple minutes, turn on the broiler and just kind of crisp the meat a little bit. So there's kind of those nice little, not charred, but hardened up chunks of meat, like what that really good barbecue chicken gets. That part. Exactly, exactly. I'm going to crisp that up. You can even do a smoker in there somewhere if you wanted to or add smoke like chipotles and everything else to make this taste even more fancy. But basically, you're making a pulled rabbit. And you can put that, on again, on top of a salad. You can put that on top of rice. Or what I really like to do with it is just get a really good like submarine sandwich bun, slice that down the middle, toast that, put some good cheese on there, put some fixings on there. I like to use, oddly enough, sauerkraut. That's I can't explain why, but it just tastes good with pulled rabbit or any meat, really, for me. I love sauerkraut. Uh, but you can just do pickles or whatever things you want in there. And then you're going to put a little bit of salt and pepper on top. Put the hot, put the, the almost said hot pepper, the, uh, <laughs> the pulled rabbit. You're going to drop that in there nice and thick. Close it up and then toast it one more time in the oven. Make sure everything's nice and crispy, nice and juicy. And it's, I can tell you right now, if you've never had rabbit, that's a great way to start trying out rabbit. It's first off with most wild meats or any meats, really, if you're not used to it, adding in a bunch of hot sauces, easy way to make it a fan favorite because you're kind of covering up whatever flavors weren't going to be great. But with a rabbit, again, there's not a lot of flavor in a rabbit. Flavor, as I explained earlier, what gamey taste is, is flavor that you're not used to. So when we say like this rabbit doesn't have a lot of flavor, it's because it's very bland. There's no fat in a, in a rabbit, so there's not a lot of juices and flavors in there to really build, build it up. One of the reasons people love Wagyu beef is because there's so much fat in that steak or roast to render out and make that flavor really pop. So the great thing with using a rabbit that doesn't have a lot of flavor is, again, it becomes the vessel for flavor. And so if you like, if you really enjoy hot sauces, this is a great wild meat you can use to replace your chicken or your pork or whatever you like to have uh, really spicy. Rabbit is a great option for that, whereas something like a squirrel has a really unique flavor to it that I like to like celebrate and how unique the flavors. It's almost like a mix of like duck and turkey in that taste. It's really good. Rabbit, just not a lot going on there. So let's enjoy the texture with good flavors. So the next recipe we're going to talk about is for upland game birds. Upland game birds are things like grouse, partridge, pheasant, and quail. You could also tuck in like woodcock in there, but I kind of put them in with migratory game birds instead, like the, the, the waterfowl and doves and everything else. We're going to kind of focus on grouse in this one because it's the most regular available one around where I live. We don't have a lot of pheasant where I live. We don't have a lot of, we have, I don't think we have any quail where I live that are wild at least. Uh, and we do have partridge, but further north. You got the Hungarian gray partridge that has been introduced in North America about a century ago. Uh, we mostly have the rough grouse. We also have some spruce grouse north of here as well. Uh, grouse is kind of like this funky little wild game animal that like some people know about it and some people don't. Um, 
but like you get into the outdoors enough, somebody's going to mention grouse meat. Yeah, that's pretty much personal favorite I've heard from people is if you ever find a grouse that's been hit by a car or something, they're like <laughs> passing my way, pre-tenderized yeah. grouse, yeah. good to go. <laughs> grouse is never had it myself. Grouse is an easy one. They're hard, like. It, you're hard up to not get one if you've been hunting long enough. Like yeah. it, they're pretty easy to get. Watch you know. them all the time. Yeah, hiking through the woods and oh, going on trips, taking off. Oh, the mating drum. Yeah, yeah. they're a funky bird, and they're kind of like there's a nickname for them called fool hens because yeah. they're so confident in their camouflage, they'll sometimes just stand their ground in the dumbest situations. Yeah. Um, I've seen them get hit by cars so easily because they think their camouflage will stand up against a sedan, mm-hmm. but uh, it don't. Uh, one of their one of the camouflage, like the, the the foolishness of their camouflage, is used against them by a lot of northern uh, Anishinaabek and Meshkigawak and Innu, where once they think you're getting too close, they'll flush up into a tree nearby, but they won't like fly off into the distance. They, they'll they'll just get up in the tree and be like, "Oh, I'm good, I'm safe." And then what they'll do is they'll make they'll take a shoelace and make a noose, tie that to a pole, and lift this up, and the, the bird will still bleed like they can't see, even though like the stick is getting closer and closer to they're like they can't see, and then you just gently drop the string noose over the grouse's head, and they're like oh they see me and they try to take off and they catch themselves on the string and that's one of the easiest ways I've ever seen people catch grouse. There's a it's called a spruce grouse snare pole. If you ever want to look it up, it's a it's a unique technique to catch birds using their camouflage against them. Um, there's a challenge with a lot of upland game bird, whether it's a grouse or a turkey, and that is the fact that they don't have as much fat in them as something like a waterfowl, like goose or mallard duck or a wood duck. And because of that, they taste kind of dry to a lot of people. Like some people complain about turkey and they're like, ah, oh, it's dry. I don't like it. Especially a wild turkey. They're like, ah, oh, it's so dry. There's a few things working against them. They don't have a lot of fat and they're a ground bird. They're a bird that walks around a lot. They're not just flying and using their breast meat the whole time. They're using their legs a lot. And so they build up a lot of uh, texture. Yeah. They're it's tough. Lean. Yeah. It's a yeah. lean, tough bird. Yeah. And so you have to kind of work in there. We're going to focus on the grouse in this recipe. Uh, it will work with practically every other bird I mentioned, though. Ahead of time, I want you to dehydrate some sliced citrus fruit for this. If you have a dehydrator, use that. If not, wait until your oven's been used, and then take everything out and put the slices of lemon or uh, oranges is what I like to use. You're going to put them in there and just let them dry in that ambient heat that's been left over when you turn the, uh, the oven off. Um, and once uh, those are ready, I want you to cut the spine out of your bird and push the body flat. You're going to do like a flattened chicken, what we call spatchcocking. Uh, so we're going to then going to do a brine. That's one of the first things you can do to make sure that your bird is not going to be too dry is you can brine and baste. Those are the two things you can really do. You can do auto basting by wrapping a bird in bacon and make sure that that fat's dripping into the meat all the time. I'm, Again, I like the flavor of the animal I'm eating. I don't want to just wrap everything in freaking bacon and just taste bacon all the time, frankly. Bacon's great. Bacon's great. Mm -hmm. I mentioned adding bacon into the rabbit earlier. That's fine. But I want to taste the grouse. I want to taste the partridge. So what I'll do is I'm going to make a brine. I'm going to take about 
let's say one cup of salt, kosher salt or sea salt, whatever you want to use, uh, to one cup of sugar. It could be brown sugar, it could be maple syrup, whatever you want to use. And we're going to put that into a gallon of water per bird. And we're going to toss them in whole bird after you pluck them. Some people like will just breast a grouse. There's still some good meat on those legs. There's still some good meat on that back strap. Leave it in as best as you can. Again, just like we did in the last episode, don't waste the meat. Use as much of it as you can. And we're going to soak it in there for a bird of that size, like a grouse. Uh, you know, half a day should be good, eight to nine hours minimum. Uh, you can brine them faster if you feel confident. Uh, if you feel like you want to make sure that it's not going to be too dry on you, especially because you're going to be roasting this. We're going to be barbecuing this bird. So there's a lot of heat that can dry that meat out fast. So brining is kind of key to make this work. And I'll also add in a splash of lemon juice just to add a little bit of acidity and help that kind of like almost tenderize the meat, but also uh, give it a little bit of flavor. Then we're going to leave it in there for eight to nine hours, maybe overnight, maybe a little bit longer. And then we're going to begin to prepare the bird uh, for actual cooking. So what I do is I'm going to thoroughly mix uh, salt and pepper and I'm going to just sprinkle it all over. And I'm going to add a little pinch of cayenne and the zest of a whole lemon. I'm going to rub that into the whole bird. Then we're going to uh, take that and we're going to put it into a, into a vacuum bag again. And this is where get, things get weird because we're going to be like, we just brined it. So you're thinking like we're putting in the vacuum bag as we love. Like, don't worry. We can work with this. We just got to be fast on our feet. We're going to put in the vacuum bag with those dehydrated lemons and oranges. And we're going to just tuck those in all around the bird. And we're going to vacuum seal it. Now, if you're really worried that you didn't get all the water off, you didn't drip it and wipe it off enough, you can put a fold-up piece of paper towel in the vacuum bag between where you're sealing and the bird. Okay? That's going to slow down the liquid before it gets to the seal. The reason we have to do it this way is that we don't ruin the seal on the vacuum bag. Or else all that liquid is going to get into your uh, fridge or wherever you're going to cure it. The other option is you can just put it in a Ziploc bag and fold it over and put it in a dish that's not going to let it leak. So if you don't feel confident with the vacuum sealer with the liquid, use a Ziploc bag, double bag it, put it in a dish in the fridge. <clears throat> We're going to leave it in there for a whole day. Okay? And again, just like when we did with the squirrel with its dry brine or the curing, the lemon and the uh, the oranges are going to rehydrate from the fluid, from all that brine we put into the grouse. It's going to get drawn up by the salt, going to mix in with all that lemon, and then go back into the meat over time. So at least a day for that. So we're looking at about two days prep in total for this. Now, once that's all done, we're going to set our barbecue to around 350 Fahrenheit. If you're out in the bush, you can set up a grill or make a spatchcock pole, which is where you take a sapling, split it in half, tie a piece of bark fiber or a piece of wire below where you're going to be fitting the bird in, and then you slide the bird down so that the breast bone is resting against the stick, but the breast meat is sticking out from each side, and then you clamp it down on the other end with another piece of bark, twine, or a piece of wire. <clears throat> you are then going to roast it. You're going to put it on the barbecue or you're going to put it right on top of the coals or you can cook it on the side. I prefer if I'm doing it with a fire to cook it by the side of the fire. That spatchcock salmon was the best salmon <laughs> I've ever had back in February. Yeah, it, it really was. Delicious. We did a winter course. We're doing a winter survival training for the Pine Project, me and Rye. 
and uh, we pulled out some salmon on the last day. It was the last day, wasn't it? Yeah, last yeah. day, for sure. And we spatchcocked the salmon the same way. Just There's no bones. You just have the salmon fillet, uh, and then we just laid it into the stick, set some skewers through there to keep it open, and just bound it down, stuck it into the ground, and roasted it by the fire. Uh, some nice pictures of it, too. You did. I like those photos a lot. I keep wanting to put those up, and I'm like, ah, winter time. Do it. Wait till winter. Wait till winter. <laughs> Do it. Do it. <laughs> Let the salmon flow through you. <laughs> so we're going to want to keep it. If we're cooking it by the fire, we want to – I like to cook it by the side of the fire, not over the flame, so you don't lose all the juices we're trying to get out of that bird to make it taste good. So what I'll do is I'll find the area close to the fire where I can barely hold my hand for a slow count of five. And I don't mean like one, two, three, four, five. That's going to burn your meat. I don't mean like one, ten Mississippis, two, ten Mississippis. I mean one – Two, three, four, five. And if you can still hold your hand there, move it closer. And right there is where we're going to cook it. If it's on the barbecue, 350 Fahrenheit, that's fine. We're going to do this slowly, and we're going to keep moving the meat. We don't want to char it. We don't want to burn it. We want to get the flavors going. We want to keep the juices. If it's on top of a grill or if it's on top of a barbecue, you're going to have to have some basting oil, like an olive oil or bacon fat or whatever other fat you like to use to baste birds. Uh, if you have some of that duck fat or goose fat from the confit, take a little bit of that and you can use that. If you're doing this outside, though, by an open fire with the spatchcock method, a cool little trick is you can put a dish under the bird because you're not going over the fire. And all the drippings are going to go into that dish. And you can just take a basting brush, dip it into that, and paint that back on the bird and keep putting its juices back in. You're going to cook this for a long time. Not like several hours. It's a small bird. It's not going to take forever. But when I say a long time, it shouldn't be done in five minutes. It should take a while. You should start going, I wonder if that's done yet. Like that sh thought should come into your mind at some point. Keep it moving, turning it, making sure the back side of the bird and the front side of the bird are being cooked. The beautiful thing about spatchcocking is when you remove that spine, the meat all lays fairly evenly flat. So that the leg meat cooks around the same speed as the breast meat. Not for all birds, but definitely for grouse and chickens and such. How I like to serve this is when it's done at an internal temperature of 165, I'm going to serve it with baked beans and cornbread. Absolutely delicious that way. And you know what? There's a lot of people that love grouse in other ways. Most people I know will basically make a chicken noodle soup. And they'll either just make everything from scratch and make their own chicken noodle soup. But most guys that I know just go get a can of Campbell's chicken noodle soup and cut up some grouse breast and toss it in. Catch yourself a stupid. <laughs> Oh, Carl Weathers. <laughs> I love that man so much. You want to care? Catch yourself a stew go. And again, once you're done spatchcocked and you've cooked up all the meat and you've eaten up all that meat, take the bones, roast them a little bit more and toss them in and make a stew. <laughs> Feel free to make your stocks anytime out of all these little bones you're getting. Oh, Carl Weathers. <laughs> now, the next one is about fish. We're going to be talking about the wall. Uh, some people around me like to call it pickerel, but it's actually walleye. Um, closest relative is the sauger. So I've never understood why we call it a pickerel. But anyways, uh, Anishinaabe word for it is oga. Walleye is a common game fish in my region. And though I grew up in Lake Huron, uh, grew up on Lake Huron, whitefish and splake, I've gotten a bit more accustomed to working with, the rel with this relative, the sauger. I like to brine and smoke my walleyes. So this is just a personal preference, as I know many folks prefer to just bread and fry them. 
in my experience, breading and frying a fish is the same as making pepperettes out of a deer. It works. And it's a fast way to enjoy it and it tastes pleasant. But frankly, there's other ways to do it. And there's a lot of other ways to enjoy the meal. Um, in this recipe, we're using a whole gutted walleye, head and all, just taking the guts and the gills out. That's all you got to do. And we're going to, just like with the rabbit and just like with the grouse, we're going to brine it. Or sorry, not with the rabbit, with the grouse, we're going to brine it. Uh, brining a fish doesn't have to go so long. Uh, you can brine it with a gallon of water for every cup of salt. Uh, but unlike the grouse, we're going to use maple syrup instead for this. We're not going to use brown sugar. I'm going to use strictly maple syrup for this. Um, brining can be fast. It can be only a couple of hours if you need to. Like You can put it in. And when the smoker's up to temperature, it should be ready to go. Fish is a very easy meat to penetrate with brine. We're going to take it out, rinse it, and wipe it dry. And as always with fish, let it sit out for half an hour to firm up a bit. We don't want to just take it right out and throw it in. You've got a lot of water in that meat. And it can end up being kind of mushy. So we're going to let it firm up. And then we're going to sprinkle some salt and lemon pepper throughout the whole body cavity and then smoke it over aspen and hickory wood chips at a medium-low heat. Check with a fork every half hour to 45 minutes. And once the meat is flaky, it's ready to go. I've had smoked walleye as an appetizer, a cold lunch, but my favorite way to do it is on top of bagels with cream cheese and pickled onions. Almost like uh, almost like locks. Yeah. Pretty much treat it like locks. Uh, it's an honestly fast way to make people fans of walleye. It's like there's so much good flavor in there. I, and again, I grew up on whitefish. I grew up on salmon. I grew up on split. I was never really a walleye guy until I started figuring out that, hey, you can smoke this like a whitefish. Breaded meat, uh, breaded fish is fine. I'm not against it. Don't get me wrong. I like it. But I want to enjoy the meal for itself. I don't like to cover things up too much. I want layers, yes, but I don't want to cover it up. So this is an easy way to do it. Just brine and smoke and enjoy it however you want. Now, we've covered some birds, but let's dive into another couple. we got goose, turkey, and mallard to go over duck. The one I want to touch first is goose, and this is a unique one. Uh, there's a lot of recipes for this one, so you don't have to listen to me specifically on this. If you don't think this sounds right, don't worry. Try out your own recipes that you look up online. We're going to make goose prosciutto. This is a long cure aged meat. You're not cooking this one. You're going to be aging. We're going to use whole Canada goose breasts. We're going to uh, pluck and flesh it off a bit. We're going to keep the skin on. Uh, you don't have to, but I like to uh, because it's going to apply a little bit of fat into the meat as you go. But we're going to pluck it as thoroughly as we can and we're going to take the back of a sharp knife, the, the sharp spine of a butcher knife, we're going to scrape at that skin just to try and get off any excess flesh or dirt. You can also rinse it, but that's going to be applying a lot of water to something we're trying to cure. And that's not really a great combination. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to scrape it off. If you don't want to mess with it, you're worried you're going to have some dirt or grit in there, or you're not going to enjoy it, or you're worried about the pin feathers, these tiny little hairs that stay on the meat, you can skin it too. Don't worry about it. I just like to keep it on because there is a little bit of fat on that, on that skin, and it's going to help make it taste a lot better for me. But anyways, let's get into this. We're going to make about two to three tablespoons, heaping tablespoons of kosher salt and about the equivalent, about two to three tablespoons of a good sugar. You can use maple sugar for this. You can use 
the Delmera or Delmera brown sugars. You can use those nice big crystal brown sugars. Yeah. You don't want to use you can, you can use white sugar for this, but it's kind of blasé and it's a little too fine. And when you get the finer particulate, it's going to break down in the fluid a lot faster. We want to keep this big. We're trying to make a crust. You're going to also add some other seasonings. You can add ground up thyme and, and oregano and such, or you can just add black cracked pepper. I'll add about a teaspoon of that. You don't need too much of it. Uh, and we're going to mix that up really thoroughly. And then what we're going to do is we're going to rest the goose breast on that and cover it with more of it. Just keep spreading it all over the goose breast until you've got about, let's say, between an eighth and a quarter of an inch all over the goose breast. You can just leave it in the fridge like that for a couple of days, or you can then wrap it up inside of a vacuum bag and seal it for a couple of days. I prefer just to leave it out because I'm trying to draw out as much moisture as I can. Once it's been in there for at least three days, we're going to pull it out and we're going to wrap it up in some cheesecloth. And we're going to want to wrap it pretty well. Uh, the cheesecloth is not necessarily there to catch the liquid so much as actually just let the air in while holding that cure on the meat. Now, after a week or so, you can take the cheesecloth off because it's formed a crust. The cheesecloth can come off. But for now, we're going to keep it on because everything's kind of gooey. And we're going to hang it from a butcher twine. We're going to wrap butcher twine all the way down, kind of like if you're doing a proper leg roast. And that's going to hold the cheesecloth on and keep the meat all together compact and secure. And then we're going to take the end of that string and hang it inside of our fridge. And we're going to put a dish underneath it to catch any drippings over the next week or so. Once there's no more drips at all and the outside of the, of the wrap feels dry, we're going to take the cheesecloth off and we're going to continue to cure it in the fridge for at least a month to two months. You can cure it longer. I recommend at least a month and a half in the fridge. And this is a dry age cured meat. This is going to be just like pork prosciutto, which is where prosciutto began. From what I've been able to research on the origins of goose prosciutto is there was a diaspora of Jewish people into Italy and other parts of the Mediterranean. And pork prosciutto, prosciutto was a really common dish. And they still want to be part of the culture and the cuisine but they themselves could not eat pork. It wasn't kosher. So they started using goose in the same way. So this is a very long historic use of the meat. And then we're going to just use it. Once we're ready to eat it, we're going to trim off the outside rind, clean that away from what we're going to be actually eating. We're, you're going to lose about an eighth of an inch of the meat in total around the edge of the circumference. And you're going to slice it very, very thin and it's perfect on charcuterie. Uh, for those of us that don't know what charcuterie is, like me, I had to learn that last year. Uh, that's cheese and crackers. Cheese, <laughs> cheese and crackers with a little bit of fruit. It could be a it could be a wedge of melon. It could be a slice and a half grape, whatever you want to use. This is a really good like snack dish that you can have at the dinner table before dinner time during the holidays uh, or for a big game coming up or whenever we can socially gather and actually enjoy each other's company again. So goose prosciutto is a great way to make use of the goose breast. Uh, there's a lot of other great parts on the goose. A lot of people sadly just rest the goose because like, oh, there's so much work. There is. You got to pluck a very large bird and gut a very large bird. And I understand that that's a lot of work. It's worth using the whole bird. Again, you can make a stew out of it. You can pull a full Carl Weathers. You can also trim the legs out and use those on their own. You can also take all the goose meat on the whole carcass and grind it up and make goose sausage. Don't feel like you have to just cook the breast because that's what your uncle did the whole time that you were goose hunting with him as a kid. 
feel free to experiment with the whole bird. Every morsel of meat on that bird is edible. Enjoy it. But one way you can enjoy it is goose prosciutto. This next one for bird is turkey. We're going to be using a wild turkey here. There's a lot of ways you can use wild turkey. You can make wild turkey schnitzel. You can make wild turkey breakfast sausages. You can roast the whole turkey just like you do for Thanksgiving. One way I like to use wild turkey because they are a little leaner and meaner than their domestic relatives, and they're just a little bit less meat and a lot less fat, is to use it more in a soup or stew. And since we've done a lot of like straightforward on-the-plate entrees, let's talk about a soup. One of the best ways I've ever had wild turkey is in a turkey noodle soup. We're going to take all the meat we can off the bird. We're going to cut it down, break it down, take all of our primal cuts and everything you do on a bird. And we're going to chop that up into about one quarter inch to half inch cubes. And we're going to set that aside. We're going to put that in the fridge, hold on to it for a day. Now we're going to take the rest of the carcass, the bone, the cartilage, everything. We're going to put that into a roasting pan. And roast it at about 350 until the meat gets whatever meat's left on is really crispy and the bone is pretty brittle. This could be 20 minutes, this could be 40 minutes. Shouldn't be more than an hour though. We're then going to take it, and what I like to do is take the back of a chef knife and break every large bone on the carcass. So every leg bone, every wing bone, make sure you break it open so you can get that marrow. We're then going to take it and put it inside of a crock pot or a Dutch oven. I prefer a Dutch oven. We're then going to add no seasoning. Don't season your soups until the very end, folks. That's one of the main rules I had to learn in the kitchen. And we're going to make a stock. Now, the way that we're going to make the stock is before we put all that bone into the crock pot, is we're going to take a little bit of oil. We're going to take carrots, onions, and celery. About one whole onion, three carrots, and I would say three or four stalks of celery. And we're going to chop them up uh, pretty well. We're not going to julienne it or anything. We want to make it about the same size as the uh, the turkey breast meat and the, and the turkey leg meat that we've cubed up. So we're going to put it all in there with a little bit of oil and a little bit of salt. And we're going to put it in there. We're going to put it at a medium-low heat for a long time. A lot of people, when they're told to start like rendering down their veggies at the beginning for a stock, they get it until the onions turn translucent. They're like, ah, oh, it's done. No. Keep it going. It should take at least a half an hour. Maybe even an hour. Keep it moving. Stir it around. You're trying to break down all the cell walls of these plant fibers so you can get all of the flavor out of them. Okay? Now that that's rendered down, we're going to throw in all the bones. And then we're going to top it up with water. It could be spring water. It could be tap water. Whatever you got available. Whatever is safe water to consume. And you're going to slow cook this at least 12 hours. I like to go a full 24 hours. Other people will even beat me at that and do, they'll say like, it's got to take three hours or three days. Sorry. It's got to take three days, whole 72 hours. If you're running out of water, top it up. <clears throat> now we're then going to strain it. We're going to strain it all the bone shards and everything else. And we're going to let that cool. We're going to pick the uh, piece of carrot that's left. And we're going to pick up whatever chunks of celery that's left. And we're going to toss that back in the stock. And now we're going to cut up some more carrots and we're going to cut up some more celery. You're also going to take some snow peas. You can take some uh, chickpeas, whatever like beans and legumes and things that are going to taste good in the soup for you. Whatever you like to add to your chicken noodle soup, you're going to add to this noodle soup. Once that's cooking for a while, we're going to get some pasta. Now, 
there's a lot of different options for pasta when it comes down to chicken noodle soup. Don't feel like you got to go with the one that you always saw everybody else use. I've honestly used like elbow macaroni. I've also used straight up, I literally just straight up chopped up spaghetti into small pieces. And you're only going to need about for a whole Dutch oven, for a whole turkey, I would say maybe about two people's worth of pasta. Like if you're doing servings, figure out the servings for two people, toss that in there. You're going to cook that for about 10 minutes at a high boil. All right. Once you've had it at a high boil for about 10 minutes, take it down to about medium heat and drop in all your turkey chunks. Now, one little tip that I will recommend to make this turkey even better. Take all that turkey meat that you chopped up the day before or the three days before, depending on how long it took you to make that stock, and put it in the oven and brown it a bit. You want to add a little bit of that flavor. So what you can do is, what I really like to do is get another pan or another pot going on top of the stove, toss in most of the meat at one time. Sometimes I can fill up the whole pot if you're not careful. Add a little bit of oil because, again, the bird is going to be pretty dry. And you're going to brown it in there, brown it in there, and you're going to start getting that, that perfect residue on the bottom, the scrapings on the bottom of the pan. When it's about ready and everything's browned up and you cook everything down, Take all the meat, toss it into the pot that's got all the noodle soup cooking, and then take that pot you have left and add white wine to it, about mm, two cups. You're going to add that in. You're going to deglaze the pot, taking your hard wooden spatula and scrape the bottom of that pot until every little morsel has been scraped up and mixed into that white wine at a low, low, low heat. Now we're going to take that and we're going to toss that into the soup. There's a few reasons for this. The acidity and the alcohol is going to help you deglaze the pan better than just straight water, first and foremost. Secondly, when you're making a really good soup, acid is part of that. You have to have that acidity. You could use a red wine vinegar or a red wine for this. You can even use vinegar for this, but I do recommend using a white wine. It's going to have the right kind of flavors that's not going to overwhelm the actual turkey stock or the turkey soup itself in general but it's gonna have an addition. You're gonna be adding a little bit to it. Now, once that's been added in, stir it around and you're gonna keep cooking that down for at least an hour. We wanna stew this. <clears throat> taste the broth and taste one or two chunks of the turkey breast here and there, or the turkey meat here and there. When it tastes really tender and everything's got a good flavor in there, add your salt to taste, add your pepper to taste, and any other herbs. If you wanna add some aromatic herbs, using the whole herb, this is the time to toss it in. And you're gonna leave it for another 10 minutes just to make sure everything's settled down and kind of stewing and steeping. And then serve it. And that's your turkey noodle soup. It will beat any Campbell's chicken noodle soup you'll ever find, <laughs> any store-bought chicken noodle soup, anything like that. This is what Ma used to make, you know? This is the stuff that you talk about where, where your grandkids will talk about like, Grandma or Grandpa did this soup, and man, I just can't live without that. That's my comfort food. This is true, genuine comfort food, folks. Turkey noodle soup. Eat it. So, unlike the other birds we've talked about, the upland game birds and the turkey, and even the goose to an extent, there is one specific bird that we don't have to worry about that there's not being enough fat, of it being too lean, and that's a good northern mallard duck. We can do this recipe with pretty much any duck, but mallard is honestly the king of the wetlands in my eyes. Teals, pretty small, except for the Eurasian teals, they get pretty big themselves. 
Wood ducks are kind of a medium-sized duck. Mallards are ginormous. There's a reason we domesticated them and made all these other subspecies of, and breeds of duck from the mallard. They are such a large bird. And we're going to use the whole bird in this. We're going to take the head off. We're going to pluck it. We're going to gut it. We're going to take the feet off. And we're going to keep all of the carcass in, in whole. We're going to make a roast duck. Very similar to roast turkey. Very similar to most other roast birds. But the beautiful thing about duck is we don't have to brine it as much. You can brine it if you want to include or infuse flavors. But don't feel like you have to because it's going to be too dry. Don't really have to worry about that with duck. There's a few rules with duck. One of the first ones is don't overcook it. It's going to turn into shoe leather. Uh, if you're just to cook like a, a duck breast, you kind of want it fairly pink in the middle. Right? When you, when you're, if you're just searing that on the stovetop, don't cook it all the way to brown or whatever color you want to describe duck meat as. Uh, it's kind of like a mahogany kind of venison color. I really love it. But if it gets to that color all the way through, the outside is going to be very tough. The inside is going to be fairly chewy. Same thing is going to go on with this roast, but we're going to be slow roasting with a braising habit. Okay, so the first while the duck is going to be braised, the second half we're going to be, or the second part we're going to be just flat out roasting it to crisp the skin up. So what I'll do is I'll make a simple brine that'll be some sugar, not a large amount. We don't need too much of it. Uh, a good amount of salt. Again, one cup of salt per gallon should do for this. Uh, and figure out how much gallons of water you need for your duck to fit inside that and add enough salt accordingly. Then you're going to leave it in there with a little bit of lemon. I actually like to chop up lemons and toss them in there. with. Uh, you, have, you can also do that with limes. You can also do that with oranges. You can even do it with a grapefruit, but I find grapefruit myself a little bitter and a little too much, but it'll be okay as well. Uh, I like to use lemon for this. We're then going to uh, brine it for at least six hours just specifically to get the flavor to infuse. It's not for increasing the water content like we do with the grouse. This is for flavor pretty much strictly. If you want to make this happen faster, add lemon juice. Okay, Add some lemon juice to it. The acidity will break down the meat a bit and all the flavors can penetrate easier. Now we're going to take some stock. It can be a chicken stock. It could be one of the turkey stocks or whatever other bird stock. Or if you had another duck that you did break down, uh, take all that and make a stock, cool. We're going to take that stock and we're going to add, uh, we're also going to need onions. I like to have potatoes. I like to have sweet potatoes, carrots, and celery in this. But we're going to start off piece by piece. We're going to take the duck and we're going to set it off to brine. And when it's close to finished, we're going to get a big roasting pan or we're going to, I prefer to use a Dutch oven for this, a cast iron pot. I use Dutch ovens for a lot. Uh, they're my preference for in the kitchen. We're going to then add a little bit of oil. It could be duck fat from the confit that you made earlier. And we're going to add that fat in there. We're going to start getting that hot. We're going to chop up onions. We're going to chop up celery. We're going to chop up carrots. These are the holy trinity of good stocks and soups and braising liquids. Okay? These are your aromatic root vegetables and herbs. We're going to toss those in and we're going to start cooking them down. How long? As long as it freaking takes. Do not do this quick. Okay? Put it at a low heat and keep moving it. Add some salt to help break down the cell walls. Do not speed things up. Cooking is about enjoying the cooking process, not just eating it. If you want to eat it fast, go to Wendy's. Till then, learn how to cook properly. When everything's nicely cooked down a bit, we're now going to add our potatoes, 
and our uh, and our sweet potatoes, and I'll even throw in like beets. And we're going to toss those in, and we're going to top that up to about. Uh, we're going to bury that on top of. Uh, we're going to bury the duck on top of those things, on top of all those vegetables. Then we're going to top it up with enough stock to cover about, uh, I'd say, a third of the duck. We don't want to bury it in there. We're not trying to boil the duck. We're just trying to braise the duck. Then we're going to put the lid on slightly askew and set it into an oven at around 225. Okay? Not very hot at all. 225, 250. We're going to leave it in there for about eh, an hour, hour and a half. It can go even longer. You can go two hours. There's, uh, it basically comes down to when is this, this, uh, when is this bird? feeling tender okay there's a certain point where you're going to check it with a fork or a knife and meat feels tense and then you give it like another half hour and it just loosens right up and softens right up and that's that's when we're ready to pull it out we're gonna pull it out we're gonna lift the bird up above all that liquid with a it can be with a screen or you can just drain the liquid out or drain everything out completely and then we're going to put it back in the oven and put it under the broiler for about 15 minutes not right close to the broiler, but at the very bottom of the oven. What we're trying to do now is get the skin to crisp up on that duck. And while we do that, we take some of that uh, fluid, that liquid that we cooked on the braising liquid, that is also going to be part duck fat now, and start basting the bird here and there as we go for the next 10 to 15 minutes, 20 minutes if it really feels like it needs it. Keep the temperature pretty, you know, on the high spectrum, but not all the way to the max heat of your oven. Uh, another way to do this, if you want to sear it up and get that skin crispy without worrying about it burning, is get a hot cast iron skillet and put the bird down and basically press it into the skillet while it's hot and rotate it often. Now, we're going to remove most of the liquid and cook the rest of it down. We can take all that liquid, we can boil it, we can simmer it, whatever we're going to do while that duck is searing. We're going to boil it down, we're going to add a little bit of a roux to it. So the way we make a roux is a little bit of cornstarch or a little bit of flour with a little bit of warm water, not hot water, not cold water, a little bit of warm water. Stir it until it's a one solid fluid. You don't want to have any chunks floating around. And then we're going to add that slowly with a whisk to the broth, to the liquid that we have. We're going to make a gravy out of that. While that's happening, we should also be baking some potatoes. Or honestly, there's potatoes in the pot roast already. You can kind of go with that. Uh, and then what we're going to do is we're going to serve the duck with its own little duck gravy on top of all those veggie, veggies that we cooked up. You can put some bread off to the side. It could be a French bread. It could be whatever you want. Uh, bannock if you really want to go all the way to the wild game food. And we're going to just let that cook up or not cook up, plate up. And then we're going to dribble just a little bit of the of the, of the, uh, the gravy. You can also kind of make it almost like a dipping sauce, kind of like the chalet sauces by adding more herbs to it or more spices and make that gravy a little bit richer in flavors. You can just dip the meat into that. It is probably one of the best ways I've had duck is you're kind of doing almost a reverse sear on a steak where you cook it almost all the way to perfectly temperature, perfect temperature and texture, and then just giving it that crispiness at the end that you're looking for. This is one easy way to do it. And it's got a lot of steps, but it really isn't that difficult. You just got to take your time, do the prep work, be patient, and use the right heat at the right time. All right? So that's roast duck. <clears throat> so for your roux, you use water and not just like butter or any type of fat mixed uh, yeah. with like a cornstarch or a flour. Or yeah, yeah, you can definitely go that way. It's just from my years of just being in the kitchen using water. What I actually like to do is the fluid I'm going to be using. I'll take like a cup aside and let's let it that cool. Yeah. While I'm cooking the rest of it down, and that's what I like to start it with. Um, okay. 
if we're doing like a roux for just a sauce, a real thin sauce, like uh, let's say like bacon and eggs, and you're just doing like a roux of what's left on there, mm-hmm. totally, yeah. You can just go right ahead and just basically add a little bit more butter and add your, 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 your cornstarch or your, your flour. But when I'm doing like a soup or like a big gravy batch, I'll, I'll just use water if I need to. Yeah. But I, I completely forgot. Thank you for asking that question because I completely forgot to say that like, you can just use the braising liquid that you yeah. that you made because it's got all the fats and everything in it already. Mm-hmm. And that's the other thing is you can take the duck out when you're searing it in another container and you can, again, deglaze the bottom and scrape that up, add a little bit of red wine or white wine to that, scrape it up and get all that beautiful gooey stuff on the bottom and then take some of the stock off the side, let it cool, add your cornstarch, flour, whatever you're using, and again, whisk that back in as it's rendering down. Totally. It's totally a good option. I've just grown, grown up from working in a kitchen. We're doing like big, big, big batches of stock, and we just need to add something to thicken the soup up. We just would make – I don't think that was the proper term, but that's what the guy called it was a roux. But yeah, roux are usually like a butter or another fatty liquid. Yeah, because even when I was doing my culinary arts stuff, it was we would have like the big like 40 50 gallon stock pots yeah but we'd still be using like butter or something like totally. that and totally. then just a bunch of flour and then mix that up yeah it and, and that's a proper room that's totally a proper room mm-hmm. um, the, the one that i'm using is basically a soup thing really, yeah at the end of the day it gives you a little <laughs> extra something totally and uh for gravies it's like the best way is honestly not even using a roux. Like if you have a good, if you're making a really good gravy, you got a thin amount of liquid. Just literally just douse some flour and just keep stirring. Yeah, you don't even have to make a, a proper roux or anything. But I'm saying, like from my experience with making these ducks or anything like with a proper braising, there's a lot of liquid in there. So I usually just add a little bit of cornstarch to something off to the side, add it in, and whisk it in. Yeah, that's not bad. Are you as hungry as I am right now? Yeah. Yeah, we're both very hungry. It's like well after midnight. We have to drive to McDonald's. <laughs> we must do a drive to McDonald's. <laughs> and now the one I've been wanting to talk about all night because I've been on, it's been on my mind for a while. Bear tacos. <laughs> we are often the taco to bears, but in this case, we're gonna be the we're gonna make them into a taco. The first part of this, before we even talk about the meat or anything else, is the seasoning. Um, you can just go and get your classic Tex-Mex seasoning for this. I'm not a fan of that. I'm, I'm, I'm just not a fan of it. For too many years working in kitchens, too many, too many, too many years being a foodie to to enjoy just getting like a Tex-Mex or El Paso taco mix and just tossing it in there, especially for something as to many people exotic, which is a weird word to use as bear meat. Um, we're gonna get chili powder. We're going to get garlic powder, onion powder. Now, if you don't want to use powders like that and you want to go even further, you can dehydrate your own onions, your own garlics, grind those up yourself. I recommend roasting them a little bit before you grind them. Uh, We're going to use about one tablespoon of chili powder for every quarter teaspoon of garlic powder and quarter teaspoon of onion powder. We're also going to add in one quarter teaspoon of crushed red pepper flakes. Now, if you are doing things from home and you've been growing your own hot peppers, you can just use that. Dry those up. Grind them up. We have a bunch of beautiful chipotles. Yeah, chipotles <laughs> upstairs that Rye grew this summer that he even smoked himself and brought them over. We dehydrated them and he smoked them. And I'm really hoping I get a chunk of bear meat in the next couple months because I gotta make these bear tacos soon. I'm I'm dying for them. I've got tons of it. I've got like a whole liter mason jar just filled with ground chipotle right yes, now. Yes, yes. Uh, we're also gonna add some oregano again. 
all these all these herbs you can be growing in your garden and dry yourself dried her, uh, dried oregano you're gonna have about uh, another quarter teaspoon of that and we're gonna add a half a teaspoon of paprika uh, paprika and paprika in my experience it does have a good flavor but in this case we're just trying to kind of get kind of like that reddish pink color into the sauce that's really what the paprika is there for uh, but one and a half teaspoons of ground cumin or if you have whole cumin you can grind it yourself feel free we're gonna add one teaspoon of sea salt or kosher salt and we're gonna add one teaspoon of black pepper that is our taco mix okay that's our taco seasoning mix remember those keep playing this back again and again until you got it all figured out or honestly go online and type in taco seasoning mix recipe and then if you want to make your own herbs and everything else learn like if you got black peppers and all that stuff Toast them in the in a pan on top of your stove. It's not that hard. Get those herbs real fragrant, and then crush them up yourself or grind them up yourself, and mix that in with all your salt and your chili powder and everything else. You can make your own chili powder. Like if you're growing your own chilies and you're able to dehydrate and grind them up finely enough, do it. Do this stuff. Anyways, off that tirade. Let's get into the meat. <laughs> let's get into the actual the the meat of this issue. We're gonna take an entire ham of a bear, which is the hind leg of the bear. We can also use a shoulder for this. We can use any real, we can use the shank, the, the lower legs of the bear for this, because this is gonna be a slow cook deal, okay? We also wanna take off for every, let's say, pound of meat, we wanna add about one cubic inch of bear fat, okay? We're gonna throw these into a crock pot and we're gonna slow cook it for at least an entire day. Okay, so if you're leaving to go to work in the morning, toss the meat in with its fat, turn it up at about a medium low on the crock pot, and when you come home, you're going to pull it apart. You're going to tear it apart, mix it up, get those juices flowing with it. When that's done, you're then going to get a pan going, a hot pan. You're going to add your meat to that and start searing the outside of it a bit. As you're searing, you're going to add those spices to it. Now... That's just the first step of making a proper taco. Tacos are not just the freaking meat, Taco Bell. Looking at you. I was looking at Ryan, but for some reason I have to say it Taco Bell because it's not Ryan's fault. It's Taco Bell's fault. <laughs> and El, El Paso and all the other companies. Anyways, proper tacos have a lot of other stuff going on. We're going to dice up some green onions. We're going to get some, uh, oh, starts with sis. Or cilantro. We're going to add some cilantro. And add that off to the side. Some people like, don't like cilantro. Like cilantro. If you don't like cilantro, that's okay. I'm not judging you too hard. But for me, cilantro needs to be part of this mix. You're also going to cube up or dice up or chop up, uh, wedge up some limes. And you're going to set those off the side. Keep the cilantro and the uh, the limes in the fridge or on standby. Okay. We're also going to make our own tacos, uh, the shells themselves. You're going to want to get masa corn flour. Okay. Regular corn flour will work. It, it's a little bit less tender for the shells, but we're going to, we, if we can get masa corn flour, which has been a nixtamalized or processed corn flour, it's been processed with lime, with wood ash, uh, it makes it much more softer, more digestible. So we're going to enjoy it more. Uh, our tummy's going to enjoy it more. We're going to get those mixed up with water, just water, salt, and you can add some cayenne pepper or some chili powder to the, to the dough as well. You're going to add enough water to make it a thick dough, stir it around, mix it with your hands, and then you're going to leave it for the day. I'll usually prep it the night before and then keep it in the fridge tightly sealed in a plastic bag. We want that to kind of age, 
It's going to make it much easier to form it into good dough. We're then, when we're ready, going to get a hot pan. We're going to take the dough and we're going to flatten out small wedges. So we're just going to make small balls about the size of, let's say, a golf ball. We're going to roll those in our hand, and we're going to flatten those. You can get a taco. You can actually get a tortilla <clears throat> press. I have one of those upstairs. They're made of cast aluminum, sometimes cast iron. Or, frankly, you can just roll it out by using or flatten it out by using a well-dusted plate and then another plate on top and just push down as long as it's a flat bottom plate. Uh, if you don't have that, rolling pins, in my experience, though, corn flour does not work well with a rolling. So I prefer to use a actual tortilla press. And when it's pressed, immediately toss it right on top of that hot frying pan. I prefer cast iron. You, Some people add a fat to it. Others don't. I prefer a dry pan for this. It does make it smoke a bit more and it does make it, but it, it makes the taste feel more at home for what I've eaten from proper Mexican food down south. Uh, when it's blistering hot, we're going to flip it over and then we're going to poke the middle. It should inflate a little bit, especially if it's a masa corn flour. And that's going to deflate as we keep moving it. And we're just going to let it get toasted on both sides. When that's ready, we're then going to take a little bit of lettuce, a little bit of diced red onions, really diced. You can also saute those if you want beforehand. I like them actually crisp myself. And we're going to put those on the bottom of the shell. And then we're going to put some of the bare meat with the taco spice in it. On top, we're going to add the green onion. You're going to squeeze a little bit of lemon and add a little bit of cilantro. Unless you don't like it. That's okay, too. Roll it up and pop that in your mouth and make the next one. Tacos are life. Tacos are important. I don't care who you are in the world. You need tacos in your life. And if you can make it at a wild game, even freaking better. Sometimes I'll just add dried coriander. Yeah. to my mix and yeah, seasoning yeah. instead of adding fresh cilantro. Yeah, yeah. So just... Same thing anyway, so just different. Totally. I also, like, again, you can add cheeses to it. You can add all the veggies in the world. I know some folks that will, like, throw on a sautéed, like, spinach, and then they'll throw it on top. Other people, again, will take, like, avocados or guacamole, put that on top. Feel free to do whatever you want to make your taco your taco. But no matter what, eat tacos. They're <laughs> part of life. They're an important part of life. So now, since we've already dived into the bear meat, I also want to mention on bear meat, like there's a lot of questionable like rules of bear where they're telling you like, oh, it's going to taste like this. Oh, it doesn't taste great. Again, that's palate and getting used to new meats and trying things out. If you don't like it, it could be a lot of things, but mostly it's going to be just in your head. Learn how to enjoy it. Figure out ways to make it better. Uh, and the same thing with moose. Moose, in my opinion, is the finest meat in the land, period. But some people have issues with it. Sometimes they consider it too tough. Sometimes they find it too strong a flavor. They don't always agree with me on this. And this could be a few things. Uh, I found for a lot of people, when you cook it on the bone, moose is not as pleasant for them. I don't mind it because that's what I was raised with. I like the taste. But a lot of people don't really enjoy it. So deboning could be part of one of the things you got to do. Other people, it's because it's too tough. And yeah, some moose can be pretty tough. When you're getting a bull moose in the rut, they are fighting, they are breeding, they are walking long distances to find those cows. So they can be pretty tough. One of the solutions for that is learning how to age your meat. <clears throat> Hang the meat for a minimum 20 days on a moose in a cool, dry environment. 
preferably with moving air. I like to hang mine outside as long as I can cover with enough material to keep the rain off, okay? Let it age. As it ages, the muscles relax. The meat breaks down from bacterial and chemical actions, okay? Let it do its thing. As long as it's below 8 degrees Celsius, aging meat is just fine for several, several weeks. Minimum for me, like actually maximum for me, I would say 20 days with a moose. Uh, the minimum would be 12 days, so just a little under two weeks. So if I shot on a Monday, the Wednesday after next is when I would take it off at the earliest. But let's say you don't have the room to be aging moose meat. You went out with your friend or two friends, and you guys were lucky enough or you folks were lucky enough to bag a moose when you live in downtown Toronto. There's not a lot of room to you know age a moose hindquarter. So you may have to debone it. You may have to package it up. You may have to put it in a freezer the day after you shot it. That's okay. One solution is to braise it and slow cook it. Another option, especially when you're talking about people that are worried about the flavor index and all that stuff, and it just tastes too gamey, you can do what we're about to do. You're going to make chili. Chili, just like with rabbit, we were talking about how it's not covering up flavor, it's enhancing the flavors because there's no real flavor in a rabbit. With moose, there's a lot of flavor. We're going to enhance it and make it better by covering some of it, but letting the rest of it shine with the right spices, okay, and the right cooking methods. First thing we're going to do is we're going to coarse grind it. That's the first thing we got to do with the, this whole process. We're going to coarse grind the meat. That doesn't necessarily mean you have to buy a grinder. If you don't have the room or you don't have the budget for a grinder or you just don't want to buy a grinder, you can do this with a food processor. You can even do this by chopping it as thin as you can against the grain. So you're going to lay the meat out longwise and you're going to slice against the grain all the way down as thin as you can and then chop that stuff even finer. That's okay too. We just want to get it coarsely ground up so there's still be texture. We want the texture of the moose meat. We want to know that this is meat. We don't want to just be eating a spicy soup or stew. We want to taste the meat and feel the meat in our mouth. So coarse grind, not fine grind. We're not trying to make hamburgers. We're not trying to make little sliders or what have you. We're making chili, okay? Next, once that's ground up, set it aside, and we're going to start preparing everything else. We're going to get at least, you know, three cups, if not four cups of kidney beans. These can be canned. These can be dried. If they're dried, you're going to have to soak them overnight minimum. Uh, I like to leave them for a day and a half until they're almost splitting from how much water they've taken on. Uh, this can be done in a broth, though. It doesn't have to be in water. You can, you, can, you can soak your beans in broth. If it's a moose bone broth, even cooler, because you can add that flavor into the mix as well. We're trying to make layers, not covering, right? So, soak the beans, or if they're canned, you can start using them almost immediately. We're going to mix the prepared beans with the meat off to the side in a moment. We're just going to put them in their own container or keep them soaking. We're then going to take our seasonings, our spices, and our herbs, and we're going to start toasting them. What we're going to be using is uh, coriander, black cracked pepper, but you don't even have to crack it. Whole pepper is okay for now. We're going to be toasting it first. We're going to add black pepper. We're going to add chili pepper. We're going to add chili powder. We're going to add uh, garlic, whole garlic if you can. If not, crush it up a little bit. Crushing it up is a great option. For garlic and most of the onions, really, 
because you're going to help release allicin, which is a defensive mechanism, a defensive chemical in the gar garlic and other plants to protect it from being attacked. So when we crush it, that's going to enhance the garlic flavor that we all like. So we're going to take three or four cloves of garlic, crush them, just completely crush them, leave them for at least 10 minutes before we start adding them in. We're going to chop up fairly coarsely a yellow and a white onion. Okay. I like to use Spanish onions. You can use white onions, whatever onions. We want two different kinds of onions that do well in soups and stews and stocks. We're going to chop them up, add them in with the garlic. When all the herbs have been toasted, we're going to add in thyme. We're going to add in oregano, especially for this. Uh, preferably dried and ground up. We're going to add those into the pot. We're going to start toasting all that stuff. As it's toasting, we're going to add a little bit of olive oil, maybe a tablespoon, once it's been getting aromatic. And you can take, before you do all this stuff, if you have the coriander and you have the, the, the pepper in there, you can toast those first on their own, then put those into a grinder or put those into a mortar and pestle and grind them up, crush them up. Then you're going to toss everything in with the olive oil and you're going to start cooking down the garlic and onions. Remember, we want to take our time with this medium-low heat. Keep it cooking for at least 20 to 30 minutes. Okay? When that's done, we're going to scoop that all out and put it right back into the same container, the saucepan, the, uh, the, the Dutch oven, the frying pan, skillet, whatever you got. And we're going to start browning the meat. We need to brown this meat. It has more than just... When people say browning meat, you ever notice when they're making like a chili or a burgers, even like the brown the meat, and they just get it to gray? Yeah. That's not what we're talking about here. Yeah. We're talking, we need to sear every little morsel of meat you just made. Searing is part of the flavors of meat. Okay? It has to happen, whether it's on a steak or ground meat. Okay? So you're going to put it all in that pan with a little bit of oil, preferably the oil that's been cooking all those herbs and spices and you're going to keep moving it for at least 20 minutes at a pretty decent heat not high i'd say a medium high and just keep moving it around giving it like a minute and then turn it again and it feels like it's sticking to the bottom of the pan that's kind of what we're after folks keep scraping that back off and keep turning the meat until everything's getting brown not gray <laughs> brown when that's ready you're then going to add in the beans. You start cooking the beans and kind of searing them as well. Add a little bit more olive oil. Uh, you can use bacon fat for this. You can use bear fat for this. You could even use the moose fat, but I don't recommend it because, again, it's a deer. And the fat on deer gets kind of waxy. It's not the greatest, but it's okay in this situation. It'll work. Um, and as those are all cooking together, start dousing it with all those seasonings that we talked about, all those herbs and spices that we've been cooking up. You're going to throw in two or three bay leaves, Okay. The garlic, the onions are all going in. Now we're going to take two cans of crushed tomatoes, or if you have your own tomatoes at home, blend them up and toss them in. We're going to top it right up with those. And if we need to, we're going to take some moose bone stock or another stock. We're not going to use water for this. We're going to toss that in as well, stir it around, give it about five minutes, and then taste it. Does it have enough salt? If not, add some salt and add some more black cracked pepper and keep adding the seasoning until it's strong in flavor. This is where you could also add your hot sauces. This is, could also be where you add in your crushed, dried jalapenos, your, cr your dr uh, crushed, dried chipotles. Hell, if you're growing Naga Vipers and ghost chilies and stuff, feel free to toss them in. Toss them in at this point and let it stew for at least a night. 
Okay. We need to bring my ground habaneros as well. Oh, God, yes. We need to make so much stuff this winter. Smoke dried and ground. Yes. (laughs) So all that is going in, and you're going to get it as spicy as you like it, and then you're going to let it stew for at least one whole night. I like to start it the night before when I go to bed, and then the next night I pull it out of the crock pot, or if it's on top of the stove in a Dutch oven or a saucepan or whatever pot you're using it in. If you don't know if you can trust it on top of the stove, you're like, or it's going to boil dry or something, put it in the oven at the lowest possible setting and treat that like your crock pot, okay? The goal here is we tensioned, we tensioned, uh, what's the word? We tensioned up the meat by cooking it at a pretty high heat and searing the outside. Now we have to relax the insides of all that ground meat. Because we don't want to be just be chewing like crust. We want to be eating the meat here. The goal here with every single one of these recipes is to celebrate the meat. Okay? We're trying to enjoy the meat. We don't want to just make it like a – I hear people say things like, with, let's say like puffball mushrooms. They say, they'll say like puffballs are the perfect vessel for garlic and fats. And what they're trying to get at is you don't eat the puffball for the puffball. You're eating because you want to eat a lot of garlic and butter. I disagree thoroughly. Puffballs are absolutely delicious on their own. I will dry sear my puffballs, turning them constantly in the pan with little to no oil, keep it moving until it's like shriveled right up. And then that at that moment, I pull it right out of the, out of the pan and I douse it with some Parmesan cheese and some garlic powder. And that is how I eat it, with a little bit of butter, with a little bit of garlic powder on top. And I'm tasting mostly the mushroom. Same thing with with meats, with wild meats. Don't try to cover up the flavor. The point is to enjoy the meat for what it is. Enjoy the ingredient. We're building layers. For your chili, you could add in a lot of other stuff at this point. I'm sure all of you have other things. You're like, hey, you didn't say chickpeas. Or, hey, he didn't say mushrooms. Toss those in, too. Toss everything. The beautiful thing about chili is it's a spicy stew, really, with ground meat in it. So you can just keep adding random crap into that that's going to taste good. And guess what? It'll taste even better. I've done it where I did one big pot of moose chili, and I was living on my own for seven days. And I basically would just add another can or another frozen bag of fill-in-the-lines. And by the end of the week, there was spinach in there. There was chickpeas in there. There was seven or eight different kinds of beans. There was tons of different herbs, tons of different vegetables. And every meal, it tasted slightly different. By the end of the week, I was throwing in like rice <laughs> and just letting rice soften up in there and cook up in there. It was great. It was absolutely fantastic. A whole week of just living off chili. The neighbors and everyone that had to drive with me hated it because I was eating chili for a week straight. But it was delicious. This was the first way I tried moose. Oh, yeah. This one you made, a big old pot, and yeah. then we were eating it for days on end. <laughs> and like, I never got sick of it. It was nope. delicious. It was that and moose burgers. Yeah. It was just a revelation. Yeah. Was like, I could delicious. do this. <laughs> this, is, this is meat? This is moose? Yeah. It was the, probably the tastiest meat I had. It's not the creamiest cut. But <laughs> well, nothing's the creamiest <laughs> cut except for the creamiest cut. Yeah. Looking at you, Jeremy. <laughs> And now we're at the last animal on the list. We got a lot of other animals we could throw in this, but honestly, let's keep this as short as we can. We don't want to be dragging it on too long. Hey, maybe down the road there'll be a Canadian bushcraft cookbook. Maybe. Potentially. There will be. Definitely. Yeah. Just not 100%. telling you yet. Patrons will be sponsoring that as well. I can tell you that right <laughs> now because it's a lot of work to write. I wrote a manuscript once. Uh, I got 25,000 words into the manuscript. And then the terabyte drive, that was the only thing I had it backed up on 
crashed. And I have not had the, the desire to try writing like that ever again. <laughs> that was four or five years ago, four, four years ago, 2016. I still have pain thinking about it. <laughs> anyway, you'll help me with it. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to need a lot of help. <laughs> Trust me, I'm going to need a lot of help. Anyways, we're saving kind of like the big name for a lot of people for last. And that is venison, deer, white-tailed deer. There could be a mule deer. This could be really any deer. This could also be a moose. This could be an elk. This could be a caribou. Whatever member of the deer family you got, you can do this. And going on the idea of different, you know, cuts that are not the most common. Like we haven't really talked on some of the bigger names. We avoid Haas and Pfeffer. We avoided deep fried squirrel. We avoided fish and chips with walleye. Most people, when they think of venison, they're thinking pepperettes. They're thinking maybe some venison burger. They're thinking maybe like one or two venison steaks or chops. That's what they're thinking about. We're going to make a pot roast. We're going to make a classic pot roast. But we're going to go a little bit to the direction of like making this really good pot roast. We're going to use a blade cut for this. We're going to take a blade roast. And so a blade is the shoulder blade. A blade roast comes from the shoulder blade. And there's a lot of little roasts on there. Like if you were doing full deboning, you didn't want to have a single bone in all of your cuts. There's like three blade roasts right there. What we're going to do is we're going to cut the entire thing in half with the bone in. Okay? And there's meat on the bottom of the shoulder blade and meat on the top of the shoulder blade. We're going to cut it in half, and this is going to be for two reasons. First and foremost, so that we can get some access to that marrow and get that good flavor of the marrow and the fats in there coming up. Second reason is you will not fit a, pot, a full blade roast or an entire roast blade in most cookpots. <laughs> it's a big part of an animal, especially if you are doing this with a moose or a caribou. Those are big animals. White-tailed deer, for the most part, you can probably get a whole one in, but for the bigger ones, you just can't. So what we're going to do first is we're going to add salt and pepper, black cracked pepper, kosher salt or sea salt, whatever you prefer, and we're going to sear the outside of the meat. You can also... What I've done in the past, the same thing what I do with an asabuco, which is a shank roast, that where you cut the shank through the bone and you have hole in the bone kind of roasts, uh, is we're going to douse it in flour. Just a little bit of flour. It doesn't be, have to be heavy. We're not breading it. We just want some flour on there. And that's going to help build up the fond on the bottom of the pan. We're going to put it in, meat down, whichever direction you want, into the pan hot after it's been doused in salt, pepper, and a little bit of flour. And it's going to start, uh, we're going to put it into a little bit of olive oil or other neutral flavored or good flavor that you like cooking oils. And we're going to sear that side. And after it's got a really good sear, really good crust, we're going to flip it over and sear the other side. We're going to do the sear first, and then we're going to put it in and braise it. The braise is going to be a venison stock, just like any other stock. You start with the bones that you probably took off all the other cuts, the rib bones, the leg bones, all that stuff you're going to Roast those at around 300 degrees, crush them up or break them up and stew those and make a stock just like we did earlier with the other animals, okay? You're just making a bone broth. Again, Grogu will love this stuff. From, you. <laughs> uh, from there, we're then going to add in the pan. Before we take the meat and put it into the roasting pan, we're going to take, again, the three holy trinity of aromatic root vegetables and other herbs, celery, carrots, and onion. We're going to toss those in with the pan that was searing the meat. We're going to add a little bit of red wine. 
just a little bit for now, maybe a cup. And we're just going to deglaze the bottom, scrape everything up, and we're going to start cooking those veggies in there with it for a little bit. These are not our main vegetables. These are just what's going to be making the braising fluid that's going to go in, okay? Once they've been cooked for about, again, 30 minutes, because these are aromatic root vegetables, we want these to have a lot of flavor. Uh, we want a lot of the flavor and the scent coming out of it. We're going to take a lot of potatoes and a lot of carrots, and I like to throw in some other root vegetables. But we're going to throw in something else as well. We're going to take whole juniper berries, and we're going to take uh, <clears throat> excuse me for a moment. My brain had a little, a little bit of a fart here. So we're going to throw in juniper berries, and we're also going to throw in some chopped, large chunk, seeded out apples. We're now going to put everything into the roasting pan around and under the venison. We're then going to take all that stuff that we've been that we've been cooking down there aromatic root vegetables and we're going to toss that in with the wine with the rest of the bottle of wine we use one cup to break up and deglaze the bottom of the pan we're going to fill this up with the rest of the wine and we're going to cook this down for about an hour okay there's a rule with pot roasts and pretty much if you want the most tender pot roast the rule is it should never i would be surprised if it was done in three hours i would be surprised if it took longer than six and so what that means is the first hour, we're just building up the flavors, right? We got to build up those flavors. At the end of that hour, we're going to pull it out, and we're going to start picking out some of the juniper berries because we don't want to have too much of it in there at all. But we're also going to add that venison stock we were talking about earlier. We want to top it up. For now, we've been cooking in just the wine and a little bit of the stock from earlier. We're going to add in about enough stock to cover it about one-third of the way up. Stir everything around. Turn the meat over. Put it back in and keep it cooking for another two hours minimum. Check it with a fork. It should break apart. If it's not breaking apart, put it back in and check it every half an hour. Again, I would be surprised if it happened sooner than three hours. I would be shocked if it took more than six. We're going to be cooking it at around 225, maybe 250. Okay, maybe 250 if you're really bold. But we want to keep this low and slow for a long time. When this is all done... We're going to pull out the venison. We're going to strip it very simply. All we're going to do is grab it with a pair of tongs. We're going to grab the bone. The meat should have shrunk back from the venison's shoulder blade a little bit. Grab that bone and pull it out of the meat. If everything falls off perfectly, it's ready. If it's not, put it back in the oven for another half hour. When that bone comes out completely clean of any meat, and it looks almost like an artifact found in the wilderness, now you're ready to start preparing your dinner. Take the venison out. Let it rest for at least 20 minutes. Like 20 minutes. We don't want this sopping, soaking wet. Basically, what I'll do is I'll got a little uh, grill, a little pan. Uh, not pan. So we're, a grill. Yeah, a little screen that's got feet or legs underneath it. I'm going to put the meat on top of that, on top of all the broth and veggies below it. And I'm going to let that rest for about 20 minutes. Then we're going to take it off the pan. We're going to slice it against the grain, and we're going to add all those beautiful veggies, and we're going to add some French breads. We're going to add some other starches if you feel like it, but honestly, in my opinion, the potatoes and the carrots and everything else in the pot roast should be all you need to have with that meal. But what I like to do at the very end is take out the apples that were left in there, puree them, mix that in with all the juice and fluids, and then baste that over the meat as almost like a dressing or drizzle. And I can tell you right now, 
I really need to go kill a deer because I am starving <laughs> for this. This is we're at almost one in the morning right now recording this episode, and we're just both sitting here going, "I'm so hungry." <laughs> and I hope you're all hungry too. I hope you all enjoyed these recipes. I hope this was a eye opener for you on an experiential journey of learning more than just how to make deer burgers and how to make pepperettes. We got to learn to enjoy our wild meat and become like the Gordon Ramsay's of the woods or the, in my, in my experience, as everybody likes to tell me, Guy Fieri of the woods. <laughs> but regardless, here we are with all these recipes. Welcome to Flavortown.